0: Good Friday, how can one describe such a day? The wrongdoing of all humanity, putting to an end an innocent man, the Son of God. This is the story of Jesus' death by way of a cross, all in one moment bringing death to the bright light of our future. He never stopped loving us, and yet this is the incredible part of it. Our sin stopped his heart. Our sin drove the nails firmly in the hands of God. All along, these were the plans. We told ourselves that we were in control, and this was deemed sufficient for all of us. The brutal beating, the inhuman flogging, the naked humiliation. Heaven watched and saw it all. Our rebellion, our guilt, Our shame, erasing the very notion of reconciling us with God. Our sin and our debt, overcoming Jesus. Here is our king, obliterated. The enemy laughing, his plans unstoppable. There's no longer the sound of freedom rising. Now God's people are utterly broken. Behold the chains of mortality. Yes, this is what is true. We had heard the stories of old. The lost are found, the blind can see, the weak are made strong. But now we are witnesses to this reality. God is dead. We'd almost believed there is a way of redemption, there is a life of fulfillment, there is a peace beyond understanding. Now we know better. For us, we can say that God is encapsulated in this one realization, the single greatest sacrifice in human history is finished. How clearly we can see it. So what's so good about Good Friday? Just one thing, that the blood of Jesus can reverse the curse of sin and raise the dead to life. How clearly we can see it is finished. The single greatest sacrifice in human history encapsulated in this one realization, we can say that God is for us now we know better there is a peace beyond understanding there is a life of fulfillment there is a way of redemption we had almost believed god is dead but now we are witnesses to this reality the weak are made strong the blind can see the lost are found we had heard the stories of old yes this is what is true The chains of mortality utterly broken. Behold, freedom rising. Now God's people are unstoppable. There's no longer the sound of the enemy laughing. His plans obliterated. Here is our King, Jesus, overcoming our sin and our debt, reconciling us with God, erasing the very notion of our rebellion, our guilt, our shame. Heaven watched and saw it all, the naked humiliation, the inhuman flogging, the brutal beating, and this was deemed sufficient for all of us. We told ourselves that we were in control. All along, these were the plans firmly in the hands of God. Our sin drove the nails. Our sin stopped his heart. And yet, this is the incredible part of it. He never stopped loving us. The bright light of our future all in one moment, bringing death to death by way of a cross. This is the story of Jesus, the Son of God, an innocent man putting to an end the wrongdoing of all Humanity. How can one describe such a day? Good Friday.
1: Hey, it's great to see you all this evening, and uh, so glad that we could be here together to consider and uh, put our hearts and minds on uh, what gives us life, what gives us hope, and tonight we're going to do that, and uh, we're going to open up the scriptures together, but first um, I want to give you a little little quiz. We're going to read a scripture without the reference on it, and I'm going to find out from you if you know uh, where this is in the Bible and uh, who it's about. So uh, look up on the screen here, you should see it there. And I'm going to read it for us. It says, He, uh, speaking of Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. So uh, the Old Testament was written uh, before Christ came. The New Testament was written after Christ died and rose from the dead. So my question tonight is, where do you think this is from, the New Testament or the Old Testament? Wow, well done. Many of you said the Old Testament. I don't think I heard anyone say the New Testament. So, so great. Well, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. If you have your Bible, if you're using one of the Bibles in the seat rack in front of you, it's on page 574, page 574, and we're going to be looking at the end of Isaiah 52 and uh, much of Isaiah chapter 53. So as you're turning to Isaiah chapter 53, um, this really is one of the gems of the Bible and. As we come to it, we need to understand that that it was spoken by Isaiah and written approximately 700 years before Jesus came into this world as the Son of Man and the Son of God. This was written about 700, that's a long time, isn't it? And when, when we read this, we realize that this is one of those prophecies that gives us such a clear picture of what the Messiah, what the Christ, what Jesus Christ would do when he came. In fact, it's the clearest scripture in the Old Testament of what the Messiah would do, so that when he came, people would see it and go, ah, there's the Messiah. Yet so many people unfortunately missed it. Uh, This this is one of those scriptures that gives me confidence that this book right here isn't just another book claiming to be the word of God, but that it is the word of God. Uh, Because other books have prophecies in them, but what we find is the Bible has prophecies, clear prophecies, very specific things that were to happen, and then they were fulfilled they were completed. Christ did so many, dozens, even hundreds of prophecies he fulfilled at his first coming, and he'll fulfill even more at his second coming. So I hope you're there with me, Isaiah chapter 53. And um, what I'd like us to do tonight in this, this uh, 30 minutes that we have together opening up the scriptures is just to, 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 to take it in. You know, we, we know the story. We know what Christ has done for us. But in, in the daily grind, in the monotony of life, in the frustrations of life, uh, in the uh, the disappointments of life, the pain of life, we we forget, don't we? We forget the beauty of it. And we wonder, is is God really paying attention to me? I know the Bible says that he loves me, but why is it that when I pray, I don't see an answer to prayer, right? Do you ever feel that way? Why is it that that in this daily life, I don't see the point. I don't see the purpose. I don't see God at work in my life. Sometimes we get there, don't we? And so tonight, I want you to receive it. Open up your hearts, and let's see together what has God done for us, so that at any moment of our lives, no matter how bad of a day we're having, we'll know this we can praise God for. This we know that God loves us, no matter what happens to us. So let's take this in. Let's receive it from the Lord. And First of all, what we're going to see here, we're going to take a look at at five things that Christ has done for us. We could look at many more in Isaiah 52 and 53, but we're going to look at five in this short time that we have together. And first of all, what we're going to see is that he became a servant, that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, became a servant to meet our greatest need, to meet our greatest need. And and take a look with me at uh, chapter 52, really this poem Starts in verse 13 at the end of chapter 52, and then it goes all the way through 53 to the end of 53. This poem that we're going to be talking about tonight that Isaiah wrote. Isaiah 52, verse 13, it says this Behold, in other words, listen up. This is super important. Hear what I have to say. He says, My servant, this is God speaking, my servant shall act wisely. He, that's my servant, shall be high and lifted up and and shall be exalted. So what is this telling us? Well, it's telling us that uh, this Christ that is to come is going to be a servant. And in fact, throughout the book of Isaiah, he's called a servant over and, and over again. When Jesus came, one of my favorite verses, one of the favorite things that he said was in Matthew 20, 28. You'll see it on the screen where Jesus speaking of himself, he said, The Son of Man, that's one of his titles, right? The Son of Man did not come to what? to be served, but to serve. This king came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And what's shocking about this is what the rest of verse 13 says. Look again at verse 13. God says this, Behold, listen up, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. Notice how it says that he shall be high and lifted up. That he shall be exalted. This ultimately is speaking of his second coming. Some people have asked, well, where are scriptures in the Old Testament that talk both about his first and his second coming? Here's one of them. He shall be high and lifted up. In the book of Isaiah, those words, high and lifted up, are spoken only about God Two other places. Take a look up on the screen, at verse, uh, Isaiah 6 verse 1, one that we're familiar with. It says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high, there it is, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This is talking about God. Now this is referring to the servant of the God, of God here in Isaiah 52, verse 13. This one who will be high and lifted up, that is at his second coming. He is, in other words, he is the most high God. And it goes on to say that he shall be exalted. Again, a term only used of God in the book of Isaiah, that he will be exalted above all the nations, above all people. But here, God is speaking of his servant in this way. And what's amazing to me is that this one who is to be high and exalted and lifted up at his second coming, at his first coming, became the lowliest servant. To be willing to wash his disciples' feet, and ultimately to be willing to suffer and die on a rugged cross. He, as the lowliest servant, met our greatest need. A need that nobody else could meet for us. And take a look at verse 14, uh, where where it begins to get into how he's going to serve us. Verse 14, and really the rest of uh, Isaiah 52 and 53 get into how he's going to serve us. How he's going to minister to our greatest need. Verse 14, he says, As many as were astonished at you, speaking of the Christ, you, the servant. And then it says of him, it says, his appearance, this servant's appearance, was so marred beyond human semblance. Semblance meaning appearance. And his form beyond, meaning marred beyond, damaged beyond, that of the children of mankind. One way he was going to serve us, is, as we know at the cross, he was so beaten and so crushed that he almost didn't look human. And, you know, you see a lot of pictures of Jesus on the cross and you just see a little bit of blood trickling down his wrists and his feet and from his side or, you know, from the crown of thorns and just this little blood trickling. That that wasn't it at all. And if if you've seen the passion of the Christ, you get a, a little bit of a glimpse of what he actually looked like. His entire body filleted and the skin falling off, bone showing exposed in his back. And he was marred, it says, beyond human appearance. He did that for us, to serve us. And he goes on in verse 15 and explains a little bit more what this means. Verse 15, he says, So shall he, this is the servant, so shall he sprinkle many nations. And that word sprinkle there, uh, it's a word, a technical word in the Old Testament, referring to when the priest would sacrifice a lamb or a goat, take some of the blood and sprinkle it on people uh, to symbolize the forgiveness of sins because this animal died in place of them in God's mercy. grace. And and I love verse 15, how it ends there. So shall he sprinkle many nations. You know, we often think of, well, in the Old Testament, God just thought about the Israelites, the Jewish people. Well, he also thought about all of us. And I'm so grateful for that. The Old Testament is full of promises, even to us Gentiles, that through Christ, we too would be sprinkled, forgiven through his death. Um, Even it goes on to say in the rest of that verse, in verse 15, if you look at it with me, it says, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which, was, which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. In other words, even kings from different nations are going to see what Christ did and be like, whoa, this is incredible. That the Messiah would suffer and die for us too, for our people as well. And they'll finally understand And that reminds me of how it says, for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard uh, they understand. It reminds me of when I first came to faith in Christ and I first finally understood the gospel. I've been hearing it all my life. I grew up going to church. But when I finally understood it, the gospel, I just, I was in awe. I was blown away. I was like, wow, God has such an incredible plan of how he had it all planned out to save even somebody as sinful and selfish as myself. And I think if, if we all reflect for a minute on our own lives, and when we first thought of, wow, what God has done for us, what Christ has done for us at the cross and the empty tomb, it's, a, it's amazing. It's incredible. So what has God done for us, even on our worst day? When we feel hopeless, when God isn't answering our prayers as it seems he's not answering our prayers, when we're discouraged, we're down, things aren't going well in our lives, Is there something we can still thank God for? Is there something that can show us that he is still for us? He is still with us? He still has a plan for our lives? Yes, it's what he's done for us at the cross. Uh, He became a servant to meet our greatest need. And secondly, um, he was rejected by people uh, so that we could be accepted by God. He experienced complete, total rejection so that we could be completely and totally accepted by God. And we see that in the next verse there, Isaiah 53, starting in uh, verse 1. God tells us this. uh, Isaiah asks a question. uh, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Um, And the answer to those questions is who's believed what we're talking about, about the coming of the Savior? Who's believed it? The answer is only a few people. Only a few people. He was rejected, you know, when he came to this earth, he was rejected by his people. A scripture that always kind of um, frustrates me, I'd, I'd say, is uh, John one11 You'll see it up on the screen where it says, he, speaking of Jesus, came to his own, his own people. He was Jewish. These were the Jewish people, his chosen people. And his own people did not receive him. They hated him. They despised him for the most part. Well, why? Uh, that's a question that people ask me a lot. I mean, Jesus did the miracles right in front of them, right? you know, they they heard his powerful teaching. They saw his life, the one life they'd ever seen that wasn't completely hypocritical. Why didn't they believe him? Well, part of it is what it says here in verse 2 of Isaiah 53. It says, for, in other words, here let me explain why not many believed Jesus when he came. For he, Jesus, grew up before him, before God, the Father, like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground. In other words, what this is saying is that when Jesus came, he didn't come in a spectacular, hey, look at me, in his pomp and glory. He came like a little plant that just grew up out of dry ground that was almost unnoticeable. Born of a poor family. Born in a barn. His first bed was a feeding trough. Uh, He didn't come in his spectacular glory like he's going to at his second coming. Uh, and then it goes on to explain some more. Why, why didn't they believe him? It says, um, and, and he had no form or majesty that we should look at him uh, and no beauty that we should desire him. Uh, he, he wasn't some hunk, handsome dude like myself. Um, <clears throat> sorry, that was not good. Okay, uh, he didn't, he didn't come with, with royal gowns and a crown on his head. And, you know, he, was, he was, just came as one of the people. And they weren't attracted to him. In fact, they rejected him. As you continue on in verse 3, it goes on to show just how deep the hatred was. Verse 3, and he was despised. That's hated, right? Jesus came. He knew uh, that his own people would hate his guts. He was despised and there's, there's the word rejected by men. A man of sorrows, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, like, oh, you disgust me, Jesus. One who hides their faces, he was despised. There's that word again, and we esteemed him not. We didn't respect him. He was disrespected. He was hated. He was despised. And he was willing to do that for us, for me, for you, for mankind. What a title he's given here, right? One of his titles that we read earlier was Son of Man. Another title, Son of God, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the Lion, the Lamb. Here he's called the Man of Sorrows. One thing I so appreciate about his first coming that he died for us, that he understands our suffering. He understands your suffering. He understands the suffering of people you love, and you can't help. You desperately want to help them, but you can't. Jesus understands because he went through it himself. When he came to this earth, he fully, completely experienced suffering to the highest degree, more than most people ever will. So when we come to him with our suffering, he goes, I I understand. I truly, truly understand. Can anyone say, thank God for that? He understands. Thank you, Jesus. He was rejected. He was despised. A man of sorrows. The God of joy. He's really the God of joy. He's more joyful than anyone ever will be. He became the man of sorrows so that we could experience his joy, his life. So what has Christ done for us? Does God do anything for us? We don't always see it. We don't always feel it. But when we remember what he did for us 2,000 years ago at the cross, it gives us hope. It gives us strength. It gives us courage. It gives us peace. It gives us a sense of security and life and love that can't come from anywhere else. He became a servant for us, and he served us, met our greatest need. Also, we'll see thirdly, Jesus suffered in our place so that we could be saved. Again, we know this, but take it to heart tonight. Tonight on Good Friday as we reflect on and meditate on his death on the cross. Um, he, He came to suffer for us, to die for us, Uh, To take our sin, our shame, our guilt upon himself at the cross. He suffered in our place. And verses four through six here's something amazing about these verses. Um, The books of the Bible weren't haphazardly put together, they were put together very specifically and very carefully with much thought as the Holy Spirit told the writers what to write, the apostles and the prophets. And something fascinating about the book of Isaiah is it's kind of in two halves. The first half is a little longer. It's 39 chapters. The second half is 27 chapters. And this poem from the end of of Isaiah 52 through the end of Isaiah 53 is at the smack dab center of the second half of Isaiah. The section of Isaiah that's referred to as the hope section of Isaiah. This is right in the center. And this is how, one way that Hebrew authors would emphasize something. They'd put it at the center, right at the center. This is at the bullseye. We're reading the bullseye of the second half of the hope of the book of Isaiah. And the hope of the book of Isaiah is the coming of the Messiah. So this is at the target, the center. Are are you getting what I'm saying? This, This poem right here. And this poem has five stanzas, five sections. And the middle section in a Hebrew poem often is what was emphasized. The middle of the poem is what was emphasized in a Hebrew poem. And so it goes like this. First stanza, second stanza, third stanza, fourth stanza, fifth stanza. Pointing to the bullseye, and this is the bullseye, verses 4, 5, and 6, especially verse 5. People today in the church are saying, we don't know why Jesus died, we just know that he did, and but we can't say why he did, and, and we can't say that he did to take our punishment, because that would make God an unjust, mean God. Well, the very center, the very focal point that God is saying, if you remember nothing else in the book of Isaiah, remember this. It's verses 4, 5, and 6. Let's look at them together. Verse 4, says, Surely He, that's Jesus, this servant, this Christ, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You see, the people in Jesus' day understood that those who were crucified, they were criminals, they were to be spit at and shamed and shunned. Jesus was there. People thought he must have sinned. That's why he's there. They thought he is receiving the just punishment against his own sin by being crucified, by claiming to be God when he is not, they thought. That's exactly what verse 4 is about. But here's where we get to the focal point, the very bullseye of this second half of the book of Isaiah. Verse 5, listen, this tells us exactly why Jesus died. No question about it. This is why. Verse 5. But he, that's Jesus, this servant, he was wounded. He was wounded, why? For our transgressions. See, he wasn't on the cross because of his sins and crimes, but for our sins and crimes. And that word for there uh, refers to and means on behalf of. In other words, I deserve to be wounded by God. But Jesus said, I will take the wound for you in your place. I, Andy Middlecoff, deserved the crucifixion that Jesus took. But Jesus died in my place. I deserve the hell that people go to, a Christless eternity without Christ, but Christ said, I will take it figuratively on the cross. And then he goes on. He doesn't just stop there. He uses four different words to emphasize that he took the punishment we deserve out of his incredible love for us at the cross. Why did he suffer at the cross? Continue the next line. It says he, that's Jesus, was crushed. Why? For our iniquities, transgressions and iniquities, our fancy words for the word sin, our disobedience against God. He goes on and says this, upon him, upon Christ, was the chastisement that brought us peace. Some of your versions, if you're looking at that, it says punishment. That's an English word that could be put there as well. I can remember my dad saying, no, 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 Jesus didn't, didn't, wasn't, you know, didn't take our punishment. That would be unjust. This was when he was a new believer. I said, dad, that's exactly what Isaiah 53 is saying. He went back and read it and says, you're absolutely right, I was wrong. I thought that sounded unjust, but that's exactly the point. Jesus took our sin upon himself and the punishment that we deserved on himself, though he did not deserve it at all. He was chastised, he was punished. This punishment brought us peace. Now look at the next line at the end of verse five here. And with his stripes, that's Jesus' stripes, he was striped with those whips, those beatings, those blows, the nails in his hands Is we are healed. Verse 6, we all, like sheep, and this is what John read earlier, very much similar from Romans 3 about there's no one righteous. All, we, that's all of us, like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We love to do things our own way, right? I, was, I, I wrote underneath that today, that's the American way. We like to do it our own way. And it says, and the Lord, that's God, has laid on him, that's Christ, the iniquity of us all. Can anyone say thank you, Jesus, for that? (laughs) Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for taking my sin off of myself, so to speak, and placing it upon your Son, Jesus Christ, at the cross, so that I could be completely, utterly, totally clean and forgiven for all of eternity. We never have to question, why did Jesus die on the cross? It's right there. It's clear. He did it for us. And the result is, as it says in the middle of verse 5, by his chastisement, that brought us peace. Peace is such a good thing, isn't it? Peace is such a joy. And God said, look, if you don't allow Christ to take your sin upon himself and your punishment upon himself, then it's still upon you and you have no peace with God. You have no peace with God. No wonder so many are addicted to so many things. We try to cover the pain. Give it to Christ. Trust His death for you. And He also says here, not only did it result in peace with God, uh, but also healing at the end of verse 5. And with his stripes, we are healed spiritually. At the very moment that you finally say, okay, I'm, I'm sinful, I admit it. God, forgive me. Jesus, I trust that you died for me on that cross and rose from the dead. I'm believing that. That's how I'm forgiven. That's how I'm saved. I'm trusting you. Forgive my sins. At the moment we say that, at the moment we believe that, at that moment, Perfect peace with God from that time on. And perfect spiritual healing with God. We're no longer dead spiritually. We become alive. And we read that and we go, oh, how I wish that could be true of our physical bodies. Well, by his death on the cross, it purchased also healing for us physically, which we'll experience when he raises our dead bodies back to life. And we spend eternity with him. And we're thankful for the times. that We do get to see a taste of it here in this life. But we're not promised that that in this life we will be healed, but because of his death, because of his resurrection, we will be in the life to come. Thank the Lord for that. So verse 6, it's such a powerful verse. We all like sheep have gone astray. That's, I've done it. I know. We've all gone astray. We've all turned, every one of us, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, laid on him, the iniquity of us all. That, That verse fascinates me, and it goes on into uh, further verses talking about the same thing that he took all of our sins upon himself. I shared this uh, a few mornings ago on, on a Sunday morning, but I'll share it again because I think there are a lot of people here from Living Grace and other churches. Um, but have you ever wondered how many sins did Jesus take upon himself when he was at the cross? Like how many How many was it? I'm gonna tell you the answer tonight. I'm kidding. I'm gonna tell you um, an example of, of what it what it might've been like. So let's just say that that. You're practically an angel, and, and I'm practically an angel, and we only sin once a day, right? And, and so say you live about 80 years, then that would mean once in a day would be about 30,000 sins. So each of us doing about 30,000 sins. Now, all of us would say, no, but I'm a good person, and, and all those sins were just little little tiny baby, almost non-sins, right? Well, if you go before a judge, and, and you, you tell the judge, well, I've only done 30,000 small crimes, do you think the judge is going to let you off? No. You're not, he's not going to let you off. Okay, So even if we've only done these 30,000 sins, okay, let's just say we don't know how many people lived before us, but we know that right now there are approximately 7 billion people in the world. We don't know how many people will live after us until Jesus comes back the second time. We don't know. but So let's just focus on the 7 billion that are here in the world. So 7 billion people, each of us almost angels, only sinning once a day. Um, 30,000 times 7 billion is... 210 trillion sins. (laughs) So Jesus took at least 210 trillion sins upon himself. That's quite a few. Yeah. Upon himself at the cross. But also he took everyone from the time of Adam and Eve all the way till the last people before he returns and takes us to be with him in heaven. All those sins upon himself. And it just makes me think of this one who is high and lifted up. This one who is the holy one, the righteous one, received our unrighteousness upon himself, the Bible even says, within himself. So what has Christ done for us? We've already seen much. But fourthly, Jesus took our death penalty so we could live eternally. Take a look at verse 7. He goes on to explain further of why he died. Verse 7, it says, For he, that's Jesus, this servant, he was oppressed. And he was afflicted. Uh, Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. What is it talking about? He opened not his mouth. Well, it means that he didn't defend himself. Do you think Jesus could have done a good job of defending himself when they were accusing him of these false accusations? Do you think he could have done a good job? One thing I loved about Jesus is every time the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the others tried to corner him, he'd always turn it back on them, answer the questions and blow them away to the point where it says in one scripture they stopped asking him questions, right? So he could have easily defended himself and I'm sure it would have felt good. He could have let him have it, right? But he didn't. He kept his mouth shut. Why? So that they would kill him. So that he would be the lamb led to the slaughter, to be sacrificed for your sin and my sin, so that he would die. To take our death penalty, we know the, the principle in Scripture that's repeated uh, from the very first chapters of the Bible all the way to the end, as it's summarized in Romans three twenty three uh, uh, six twenty three. The wages of sin is death. In other words, what we earn, what we deserve for disobeying God for sinning, is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death, which is separation from Him forever. But Jesus, as it says here, uh, He took that death. For us. He died in our place for our sin. What has Jesus done for us? He was our servant. He was rejected. He suffered. He took our death penalty. And then fifthly, Jesus declared us legally and spiritually right in God's supreme court. Take a look at verses 9, 10, and 11. It says, and they made his grave with the wicked. Oh, I forgot to read verse 8. Forgive me. It says, by oppression and judgment, he, that's Jesus, was taken away. That means put to death. And as for his generation, who who considered that he was cut off, that's a way in the Old Testament of saying put to death, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. My people meaning Isaiah's people, the Israelites. Thankfully for the Gentiles as well. And verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man, in his death, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, gave him his tomb. Um, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. That's a way of it saying he had no sin. Jesus never sinned. Yet, verse, verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. We often go, well, what's God's will? It was God's will to crush Jesus Christ so that we could have life. What's God's will? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, Jesus' death was an offering, a sacrifice for our guilt, for our sin. Once that happens, it says, He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. The end of verse 10 and the beginning of verse 11, I'm not supposed to talk about the resurrection tonight because that's going to happen on Sunday. So I can't mention it, but I will because we think, was this just some like plan B? Oh shoot, they killed Jesus. We better start spreading this lie that he was raised to life. No, Jesus said that it would happen not only to Jesus, but the Old Testament. In numerous places, especially here, Clearly, once he died, he was going to be raised back to life. 700 years before Jesus was raised to life, it was clearly prophesied and predicted right there. But he goes on, and this is, this is a point that um, John was reading earlier up on the screen, um, the, the last half of verse 11. Look at that. It says, By his knowledge, by Christ's knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Righteous. <laughs> accounted righteous. Okay, so I brought my gavel up here. I'm very proud of this thing. But the uh the reality is is that all of us, uh, it says, the Bible says all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that? All of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Me by myself, I can't have my mom there and said, "Hey, my mom, she was an awesome Christian." You know what I mean? you got to accept me. you got to forgive me. you got to rescue me from hell. Let me live in paradise forever because my mom was such a great person. I say, no, 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 no. It's between me and you, God is going to say. We're going to stand individually before God. All of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And he's going to stand there with his gavel. He's going to say, what did you do with my death on the cross and my resurrection from the grave? Did you allow me to take your sin and shame and guilt and place it on myself and for me to take your punishment and your penalty on the cross? Or did you decide not to receive that gift? For everyone, man, woman, boy, girl, whatever nation, whatever country you're from, for those of us who reject that gift, he's going to pound that and say guilty. Guilty is charged. Every sin, every crime you've done, you must pay for for all of eternity in a place called the Lake of Fire. I died so that you wouldn't have to go there, but you chose to go there. But for those of us who humbled ourselves and said, my goodness, I am a sinner. I have broken God's law and I deserve that hell." But I'm so grateful that by God's amazing love and grace, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to suffer and die in my place for me, Dying, taking my penalty upon himself, taking my sin upon himself, and completely and totally taking that so that I could be completely and totally forgiven. For those of us who received it and believed it, he's going to pound that gavel and say, Not guilty. He's going to say, You are righteous in my sight. Not because of our righteousness, but as Galatians 3 says, We are clothed with his righteousness. Anyone want to say amen to that? Thank you so much, Jesus. So when we think about how do we respond to this? How do we respond to this? So I know there are many people here tonight who are believers in Christ, and, and there are some likely who, who have not yet said, yes, Jesus, I need you. I want you. I'm trusting you now. I'm trusting you to forgive my sins. I'm trusting you to give me eternal life. I'm trusting you to give me that peace with God. I'm trusting you to heal me spiritually to make me new again to give me hope. I'm trusting you. Maybe you haven't done that yet. Tonight could be that night. And the way He would want you to respond is by saying, Yes, I need you. I, I forgive my sins. I am a sinner. I've broken your laws. I'm trusting in you now. And we're going to take communion in, in, a, in a minute here, which is an awesome, awesome symbol of what we've just been talking about. For those of us who believe, how do we respond? to what Christ has done. You know, we, as I said at the beginning, we can get disappointed with God. We have expectations that are wrong. And, and we don't see answers to prayer like we'd like. We, we, we don't always see what we hope to see. We don't always trust that God is actually loving us. I think tonight, God wants us to remember that he loves us and he's for us. He's not against us. Christ died for us as an eternal reminder of his incredible love for us. So my encouragement to us tonight is to open our hearts and receive that and and thank him for it. There's always something to thank God for. No matter how bad you feel about yourself, no matter how bad you feel about your sin, there's always something to be completely thankful to God for, to praise him for. So tonight, let's praise him. Let's thank him you know, so often we're concerned about what can God do for me? What has he done for me lately? Why hasn't he answered these prayers? Why hasn't he done this or that? But tonight let's begin to answer that, ask that question. What can I do for him? What can I do with him? Jesus, you've done so much for me. You've done so much. Everything that I've needed to be right with you. You've done it all. Now, I want to live for you. What can I do for you? So hopefully you grabbed one of these uh, communion cups. And if you didn't, please don't feel ashamed. You can just walk out real quick and grab one in the lobby. Um, but uh, if you would take this and uh, start with the bread on the top, so that way when you turn it over, the juice doesn't drip all over your, yourself. Um, But this, I don't need to say much because we've already said all that needs to be said from Isaiah 52 and 53. We know this symbolizes what we read tonight. And we take this as a way to thank God, right? So tonight as as we take communion, let's do two things. Let's take a moment to personally thank Him. He's here with us tonight, right? Let's thank God. Let's thank Christ for what He's done for us. Take a moment to really just Express gratitude and appreciation to Him, And that's part of what communion is about, right? And then secondly, take time to confess your sin. Because as believers, even though we've already been completely forgiven through Christ's death on the cross, we still sin and need to keep short accounts with God and confess that sin when we recognize that we've done it. Ask God to search your heart and help you to see if there's any, any way that you've sinned that you might not even be aware of. Take that time to confess that sin. And then when you're ready, take that communion yourself, and then John's going to close us in prayer.